Chapter Fourteen of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Fourteen. Preparing for Home. The affair proceeded rapidly, as such affairs should do where there is no reason for delay. There was no more talk of Birmingham. The journey, which was to have been taken in a few days, was not spoken of again. The external arrangements advanced well. So many as there were anxious about this part of the matter, and accomplished in habits of business. Mr. Rowland was happy to let the corner-house to Mr. Hope, not even taking advantage, as his lady advised, of its being peculiarly fit for a surgeon's residence, from its having a door round the corner, made to be a surgery door, to raise the rent. Mr. Rowland behaved handsomely about everything, rent, alterations, painting and papering, and laying out the garden anew. Mr. Gray bestirred himself to get the affairs at Birmingham settled, and he was soon enabled to inform Mr. Hope that Hester's fortune was ascertained, and that it was smaller than could have been wished. He believed his cousins would have seventy pounds a year each, and no more. It was some compensation for the mortifying nature of this announcement that Mr. Hope evidently did not care at all about the matter. He was not an ambitious nor yet a luxurious man. His practice supplied an income sufficient for the ease of young married people, and it was on the increase. No one seemed to doubt for a moment that Margaret would live with her sister. There was no other home for her. She and Hester had never been parted. There seemed no reason for their parting now, and every inducement for their remaining together. Margaret did not dream of objecting to this. She only made it a condition that fifty pounds of her yearly income should go into the family stock, thus saving her from obligation to any one for her maintenance. Living was so cheap in Deerbrook that Margaret was assured that she would render herself quite independent by paying fifty pounds a year for her share of the household expenses, and reserving twenty for her personal wants. Both the sisters were surprised to find how much pleasure they took in the preparations for this marriage. They could not have believed it, and, but that they were too happy to feel any kind of contempt, they would have despised themselves for it. But such contempt would have been misplaced. All things are according to the ideas and feelings with which they are connected, and if, as old George Herbert says, dusting a room is an act of religious grace when it is done from a feeling of religious duty, furnishing a house is a process of high enjoyment when it is the preparation of a home for happy love. The dwelling is hung all round with bright anticipations, and crowded with blissful thoughts, spoken by none, perhaps, but present to all. On this table, and by this snug fireside, will the cheerful winter breakfast go forward, when each is about to enter on the gladsome business of the day, and the sofa will be drawn out, and those window-curtains will be closed, when the intellectual pleasures of the evening, the rewards of the laborious day, begin. Those ground-windows will stand open all the summer noon, and the flower-stands will be gay and fragrant, and the shaded parlour will be the cool retreat of the wearied husband when he comes in to rest from his professional toils. 
there will stand the books destined to refresh and refine his higher tastes, and there the music with which the wife will indulge him. Here will they first feel what it is to have a home of their own, where they will first enjoy the privacy of it, the security, the freedom, the consequence in the eyes of others, the sacredness in their own. Here they will first exercise the graces of hospitality and the responsibility of control. Here will they feel that they have attained the great resting place of their life, the resting place of their individual lot, but only the starting point of their activity. Such is the work of furnishing a house once in a lifetime. It may be a welcome task to the fine lady, decking her drawing-room anew, to gratify her ambition or divert her ennui. It may be a satisfactory labor to the elderly couple, settling themselves afresh when their children are dispersed abroad, and it becomes necessary to discard the furniture that the boys have battered and spoiled. It may be a refined amusement to the selfish man of taste, wishing to prolong or recall the pleasures of foreign travel. But to none is it the conscious delight that it is to young lovers and their sympathizing friends, whether the scene be the two rooms of the hopeful young artisan about to bring home his bride from service, or the palace of a nobleman, enriched with intellectual luxuries for the lady of his adoration, or the quiet abode of an unambitious professional man whose aim is privacy and comfort. Margaret's delight in the process of preparation was the most intense of all that was felt, except perhaps by one person. Mrs. Gray and Sophia enjoyed the bustle, and the consequence, and the exercise of their feminine talents, and the gossip of the village, and the spitefulness of Mrs. Rowland's criticisms, when she had recovered from her delight at her brother's escape from Hester, and had leisure to be offended at Mr. Hope's marrying into the great connection so decidedly. The children relished the mystery of buying their presents secretly, and hiding them from their cousins, till the day before the wedding. Sidney was proud to help Margaret in training the chrysanthemums, putting the garden into winter trim, and in planting round the walls of the surgery with large evergreens. Mr. Gray came down almost every evening to suggest and approve, and Morris left her needle, now busy from morning till night in Hester's service, to admire and to speak her wishes, when desired, about the preparations in her department. Morris, another maid, and a footboy were the only servants, and Morris was to have everything as she liked best for her own region. But Margaret was as eager and interested as all the rest together. Her heart was light for her sister, and, for the first time since she was capable of thought, she believed that Hester was going to be happy. Her own gain was almost too great for gratitude, a home, a brother, and relief from the responsibility of her sister's peace. As often as she thought of these blessings, she looked almost as bright as Hester herself. How was Mr. Hope all this while? Well, and growing happier every day. He believed himself a perfectly happy man, and looked back with wonder to the struggle which it had cost him to accept his present lot. He was not only entirely recovered from his accident before the rich month of October came in, but truly thankful for it, as the means of bringing to his knowledge, sooner at least, the devoted affection which he had inspired. It cannot but be animating, flattering, delightful to a man of strong domestic tendencies, 
to know himself the object of the exclusive attachment of a strong-minded and noble-hearted woman and when in addition to this her society affords the delight of mental accomplishment and personal beauty such as hester's he must be a churl indeed if he does not greatly enjoy the present and indulge in sweet anticipations for the future hope also brought the whole power of his will to bear upon his circumstances he dwelt upon all the happiest features of his lot and in his admiration of hester thought as little as he could of margaret he had the daily delight of seeing how he constituted the new-born happiness of her whose life was to be devoted to him he heard of nothing but rejoicings and blessings and fully believed himself the happy man that every one declared him he dwelt on the prospect of a home full of domestic attachment of rational pursuit of intellectual resource and looked forward to a life of religious usefulness of vigorous devotedness to others of which he trusted that his first act of self-sacrifice and its consequences were the earnest and the pledge he had never for a moment repented what he had done and now when he hastily recurred to the struggle it had cost him it was chiefly to moralize on the short-sightedness of men in their wishes and to be grateful for his own present satisfaction a few cold misgivings had troubled him and continued to trouble him if hester at any time looked at all less bright and serene than usual but he concluded that these were merely the cloud shadows which necessarily chequer all the sunshine of this world he told himself that when two human beings become closely dependent on each other their peace must hang upon the variations in one another's moods and that moods must vary in all mortals he persuaded himself that this was a necessary consequence of the relation and to be received as a slight set-off against the unfathomable blessings of sympathy he concluded that he had deceived himself about his feelings for margaret he must have been mistaken for he could now receive from her the opening confidence of a sister he could cordially agree to the arrangement of her living with them he could cooperate with her in the preparation for the coming time without any emotion which was inconsistent with his duty to hester with unconscious prudence he merely said this to himself and let it pass reverting to his beautiful his happy his own hester and the future years over which her image spread its sunshine the one person who relished the task of preparation more than margaret herself was hope every advance in the work seemed to bring him nearer to the source of the happiness he felt every day of which they marked the lapse appeared to open wider the portals of that home which he was now more than ever habituated to view as the sanctuary of duty of holiness and of peace all remarked on mr hope's altered looks the shyness and coldness with which he had seemed to receive the first congratulations on his engagement and which excited wonder in many and uneasiness in a few had now given place to a gaiety only subdued by a more tender happiness even mrs grey need no longer watch his countenance and manner and weigh his words with anxiety and try to forget that there was a secret between them one ground of mr hope's confidence was hester's candour she had truly told her sister 
she felt it was no time for pride when he offered himself to her. Her pride was strong, but there was something in her as much stronger in force than her pride as it was higher in its nature, and she had owned her love with a frankness which had commanded his esteem as much as it engaged his generosity. She had made a no less open avowal of her faults to him. She had acknowledged the imperfections of her temper, the sorest of her troubles, both at the outset of their engagement and often since. At first, the confession was made in an undoubting confidence that she should be reasonable and amiable and serene henceforth forever, while she had him by her side. Subsequent experience had moderated this confidence into a hope that, by his example and under his guidance, she should be enabled to surmount her failings. He shared this hope with her, pledged himself to her and to himself to forbear as he would be forborne, to aid her and to honour her efforts, and he frequently declared, for his own satisfaction and hers, that all must be safe between them while such generous candour was the foundation of their intercourse. A generosity and candour in whose noble presence superficial failings of temper were as nothing. He admitted that her temper was not perfect, and he must ever remember his own foreknowledge of this. But he must also bear in mind whence this foreknowledge was derived, and pay everlasting honour to the greatness of soul to which he owed it. An early day in December was fixed for the marriage, and no cause of delay occurred. There happened to be no patients so dangerously ill as to prevent Mr. Hope's absence for his brief wedding trip. The workpeople were as nearly punctual as could be expected, and the house was all but ready. The wedding was really to take place, therefore, though Mrs. Rowland gave out that, in her opinion, the engagement had been a surprisingly short one, that she hoped the young people knew what they were about, while all their friends were in such a hurry that it was a wretched time of the year for a wedding, and that, in her opinion, it would have been much pleasanter to wait for fine spring weather. As it happened, the weather was finer than it had been almost any day of the preceding spring. The day before the wedding was sunny and mild as an October morning, and the fires seemed to be blazing more for show than use. When Mr. Hope dropped in at the Greys at two o'clock, he found the family dining, it was a fancy of Mrs. Gray's to dine early on what she considered busy days. An early dinner was, with her, a specific for the despatch of business. On this day the arrangement was rather absurd, for the great evil of the time was that everything was done, except what could not be transacted till the evening, and the hours were actually hanging heavy on the hands of some members of the family. Morris had packed Hester's clothes for her little journey, and put out of sight all the morning of both sisters, except what they actually had on. Sophia's dress for the next morning was laid out, in readiness to be put on, and the preparations for the breakfast were as complete as they could be, twenty hours beforehand. It only remained to take a final view of the house in the evening, when the children's presents were to be discovered, and to cut the wedding-cake. In the interval there was nothing to be done. Conversation flagged, everyone was dull, and it was a relief to the rest when Mr. Hope proposed to Hester to take a walk. 
Mrs. Rowland would have laughed at the idea of a walk on a December afternoon, if she had happened to know the circumstance, but others than lovers might have considered it pleasant. The sun was still an hour from its setting, and high in the pale heaven was the large moon, ready to shine upon the fields and woods, and shed a milder day. No frost had yet bound up the earth. It had only striped the trees, with a touch as gentle as that of the fruit-gatherer. No wintry gusts had yet swept through the woods, and all there was this day as still as in the autumn noon, when the nut is heard to drop upon the fallen leaves, and the light squirrel is startled at a rustle along its own path. As a matter of course, the lovers took their way to the spring in Vernon Woods, the spot which had witnessed more of their confidence than any other. In the alcove above it they had taken shelter from their summer storm and the autumn shower. They had sat on its brink for many an hour, when the pure depths of its rocky basin seemed like coolness itself in the midst of heat, and when falling leaves fluttered down the wind and dimpled the surface of the water. They now paused once more under shelter of the rock which overhung one side of the basin, and listened to the trickle of the stream. If, aside the devil turned for envy, in the presence of the pair in paradise, it might be thought that he would take flight from this scene also, from the view of this resting of the lovers on their marriage-eve, when the last sun of their separate lives was sinking, and the separate business of their existence was finished, and their paths had met before the gate of their paradise, and they were only waiting for the portal to open to them. But there was that on Hester's brow which would have made the devil look closer. She was discomposed, and her replies to what was said were brief, and not much to the purpose. After a few moments' silence, Mr. Hope said gaily, "'There is something on our minds, Hester. Come, what is it?' "'Do not say our minds.' You know you never have anything on yours. I believe it is against your nature, and I know it is against your principles. Do not say our minds. I say it because it is true. I never see you look grave, but my heart is as heavy. But never mind that. What is the matter, love? Nothing, sighed Hester. Nothing that anyone can help. People may say what they will, Edward. But there can be no escape from living alone in this world, after all. What do you mean? I mean what no one, not even you, can gainsay. I mean that the heart knoweth its own bitterness, that we have disappointments and anxieties and remorse and many, many kinds of trouble that we can never tell to any human being, that none have any concern with, that we should never dare to tell. We must be alone in the world after all. Where is your faith while you feel so? asked Edward, smiling. Do you really think that confidence proceeds only while people believe each other perfect, while they have no anxieties and disappointments and remorse? Do you not feel that our faults, or rather our failures, bind us together? Our faults bind us together, exclaimed Hester. Oh, how happy I should be! I could think that! We cannot but think it. We shall find it so, love, every day. When our faith fails, when we are discouraged, instead of fighting the battle, with our faithlessness alone, we shall come to one another for courage, for stimulus, for help, to see the bright, 
the true side of everything. That supposes that we can do so, said Hester sadly, but I cannot. I have all my life intended to repose entire confidence, and I have never done it yet. Yes, you have been me. You cannot help it. You think that you cannot, only because you mean more by reposing confidence than others do. Your spirit is too noble, too ingenuous, too humble for concealment. You cannot help yourself, Hester. You have fully confided in me, and you will go on to do so. Hester shook her head mournfully. I have done it hitherto with you, and with you only, said she. And the reason has been, you know the reason, the same which made me own all to you that first evening in the shrubbery. Ah, I see you think that this is a lasting security, that, as you will never change, I never shall. But you do not understand me wholly yet. There is something that you do not know, that I cannot make you believe. But you will find it true when it is too late. No good influence is permanent with me. Many, all have been tried, and the evil that is in me gets the better of them all at last. She snatched her hand from her lover's, and covered her face to hide her tears. I shall not contradict you, Hester, said he tenderly, because you will only abase yourself the more in your own eyes. But tell me again, where is your faith? while you let spectres from the past glide over into the future to terrify you. I say you, and not us, because I am not terrified. I fear nothing. I trust you, and I trust him who brought us together, and moved you to lay open your honest heart to me. My sick heart, Edward, it is sick with fear. I thought I had got over it. I thought you had cured it, and that now, on this day of all days, I should have been full of your spirit, of the spirit which made me so happy a few weeks ago, that I was sure I should never fall back again. But I am disappointed in myself, Edward, wholly disappointed in myself. I have often been so before, but this time it is fatal. I shall never make you happy, Edward. Neither God nor man requires it of you, Hester. Dismiss it. Oh, hear me! cried Hester, in great agitation. I vowed to devote myself to my father's happiness when my mother died. I promised to place the most absolute confidence in him. I failed. I fancied miserable things. I fancied he loved Margaret better, and that I was not necessary to him. And I was too proud, too selfish to tell him so. And when he was dying, and commended Margaret and me to each other, oh, so solemnly, I am sure it was in compassion to me, and I shrank from it, even at that moment. When we came here, and Margaret and I felt ourselves alone among strangers, we promised the same confidence I vowed to my father. The next thing was, perhaps you saw it. I grew jealous of Margaret's having another friend, though Maria was as ready to be my friend as hers, if I had only been worthy of it. Up to this hour, at this very moment I believe I am jealous of Maria, and with Margaret before my eyes, Margaret who loves me as her own soul, and yet has never felt one moment's jealousy of you, I am certain, if her heart was known. We will rejoice, then, in Margaret's peace of mind, the reward of her faith. Oh, so I do. 
I bless God that she is rewarded better than by me. But you see how it is. You see how I poison everyone's life. I never made anybody happy. I never shall make anyone happy. Let us put the thought of making happiness out of our minds altogether, said Hope. I am persuaded that half the misery in the world comes of straining after happiness. After our own, said Hester. I could give up my own, but yours? I cannot put yours out of my thoughts. Yes, you can, and you will when you give your faith fair play. Why cannot you trust God with my happiness as well as your own? And why cannot you trust me to do without happiness, if it be necessary, as well as yourself? I know, said Hester, that you are willing to forego all for me as I am for you, but I cannot, I dare not, consent to the risk. Oh, Edward, if ever you wished to give me ease, do what I ask now. Give me up. I shall make you wretched. Give me up, Edward. Hope's spirit was for one instant wrapped in storm. He recoiled from the future, and at the moment of recoil came this offer of release. One moment's thought of freedom, one moment's thought of Margaret convulsed his soul, but before he could speak the tempest had passed away. Hester's face, frightfully agitated, was upraised. His countenance seemed heavenly to her when he smiled upon her and replied, I will not. You are mine. And, as I said before, all our failures, all our heart-sickness, must bind us the more to each other. Then you must sustain me. You must cure me. You must do what no one has ever yet been able to do. But above all, Edward, you must never, happen what may, cast me off. That is, as you say, what no one has ever been able to do, said he, smiling. Your father's tenderness was greatest at the last, and Margaret loves you, you know, as her own soul. Let us avoid promises, but let us rest upon these truths. And now, continued he, as he drew nearer to her, and made his shoulder a resting place for her throbbing head, I have heard your thoughts for the future. Will you hear mine? Hester made an effort to still her weeping. I said, just now, that I believe half the misery in our lives is owing to straining after happiness, and I think, too, that much of our sin is owing to our disturbing ourselves too much about our duty. Instead of yielding a glad obedience from hour to hour, it is the weakness of many of us to stretch far forward into the future which is beyond our present reach, and torment ourselves with apprehensions of sin, which we should be ashamed of if they related to pain and danger. Oh, if you could prove to me that such is my weakness, cried Hester. I believe that it is yours, and I know that it is my own, my Hester. We must watch over one another. Tell me, is it not faithless to let our hearts be troubled about any possible evil which we cannot at the moment of the trouble prevent? Are we not sacrificing what is, at the time, of the most importance, our repose of mind, the holiness, the religion of the hour? I know I have defiled the holiness of this hour, said Hester humbly, but, as my thoughts were troubled, 
Was it not better to speak them? I could not but speak them. You cannot but do and speak what is most honourable and true and generous, Hester, and that is the very reason why I would fain have you trust for the future as well as the present to the impulse of the hour. Surely, love, the probation of the hour is enough for the strength of every one of us. Far, far too much for me, at times too much for all. Well, then, what have we to do? To rest the care of each other's happiness upon him whose care it is, to be ready to do without it, as we would hold ourselves ready to do without this or that or the other comfort or supposed means of happiness. Depend upon it, this happiness is too subtle and too divine a thing for our management. We have nothing to do with it but to enjoy it when it comes. Men say of it, Lo, it is here, lo, there, but never has man laid hold of it with a voluntary grasp. But we can banish it, said Hester. Alas, yes, and what else do we do at the very moment when we afflict ourselves about the future? Surely our business is to keep our hearts open for it, holy and at peace, from moment to moment, from day to day. And yet, is it not our privilege, said, at least to be so, to look before and after? I am not sure, however, that I always think this is a privilege. I long sometimes to be any bird in the air, that I might live for the present moment alone. And yet, is it not our privilege, said at least to be so, to look before and after? I am not sure, however, that I always think this is a privilege. I long sometimes to be any bird of the air, that I might live for the present moment alone. Let us be so far birds of the air, free as they, neither toiling nor spinning out anxious thoughts for the future. But why, with all this, should we not use our human privilege of looking before and after to enrich and sanctify the present? Should we enjoy the wheat-fields in June as we do if we knew nothing of any seed-time and had never heard of harvest? And how should you and I feel at this moment, sitting here, if we had no recollection of walks and shrubberies and no prospect of a home and a lifetime to spend in it to make this moment sacred? Look at those red breasts. Shall we change lots with them? No, no. Let us look forward. But how? We cannot persuade ourselves that we are better than we are for the sake of making the future bright. True, and therefore it must be God's future and not our own that we must look forward to. That is for confessors and martyrs, said Hester. They can look peacefully before and after when there is a bright life and a world of hopes lying behind and nothing around and before them but ignominy and poverty, or prison, or torture, or death. They can do this, but not such as I. God's future is enough for them, the triumph of truth and holiness, but— And I believe it would be enough for you in their situation, Hester. I believe you could be a martyr for opinion. Why cannot you and I brave the suffering of our own faults as we would meet sickness or bereavement from heaven, and torture and death from men. Is this the prospect in view of which you marry me? It is the prospect in view of which all of us are ever living, since we are all faulty, 
and must all suffer. But marriage justifies a holier and happier anticipation. The faults of human beings are temporary features of their prospect. Their virtues are the firm ground under their feet, and the bright arch over their heads. Is not it so? If so, how selfish, how ungrateful have I been in making myself and you so miserable! But I do so fear myself. Let us fear nothing, but give all our care to the day and the hour. I am confident that this is the true obedience, and the true wisdom. If the temper of the hour is right, nothing is wrong. And I am sure, if the temper of the hour is wrong, nothing is right. If one could always remember this, if we could always remember this, we should, perhaps, find ourselves a little above the angels, instead of being, like the serene, the fenelons of our race, a little below them. We shall not always remember it, love, but we must remind each other as faithfully as may be. You must bring me here when I forget, said Hester. This spring will always murmur the truth to me. If the temper of the hour is right, nothing is wrong. How wrong has my temper been within this hour? Let it pass, my Hester. We are all faithless at times, and without the excuse of meek and anxious love. Is it possible that the moon casts that shadow? The dark, dark hour is gone, said Hester, smiling as she looked up, and the moon shone on her face. Nothing is wrong. Who would have believed an hour ago that I should now say so? When you would have given me up, said Hope, smiling. Oh, let us forget it all. Let us go somewhere else. Who will say this is winter? Is it October, or the first mild day of March? It might be either. There is not a breath to chill us, and these leaves, what a soft autumn carpet they make. They have no wintry crispness yet. There is not a breath to chill us, and these leaves, what a soft autumn carpet they make. They have no wintry crispness yet. There was one inexhaustible subject to which they now recurred. Mr. Hope's family. He told over again what Hester was never weary of hearing, how his sisters would cherish her, whenever circumstances should allow them to meet, how Emily and she would suit best, but how Anne would look up to her. As for Frank, but this representation of what Frank would say and think and do was somewhat checked and impaired by the recollection that Frank was just about this time receiving the letter in which Margaret's superiority to Hester was pretty plainly set forth. The answer to that letter would arrive, some time or other, and the anticipated awkwardness of that circumstance caused some unpleasant feelings at this moment, as it had often done before during the last few weeks. Nothing could be easier than to set the matter right with Frank, as was already done with Emily and Anne. The first letter might occasion some difficulty. Frank was passed over lightly, and the foreground of the picture of family welcome was occupied by Emily and Anne. It was almost an hour from their leaving the spring, before the lovers reached home. They were neither cold nor tired. They were neither merry nor sad. The traces of tears were on Hester's face, but even Margaret was satisfied when she saw her leaning on Edward's arm, receiving the presence of the children where, alone, the children would present them in the new house. 
There was no fancy about the arrangements, no ceremony about the cake and the ring, to which Hester did not submit with perfect grace. Notwithstanding the traces of her tears, she had never looked so beautiful. The same opinion was repeated the next morning by all the many who saw her in church, or who caught a glimpse of her in her way to and from it. No wedding was ever kept a secret in Deerbrook, and Mr. Hope's was the one in which concealment was least of all possible. The church was half full, and the path to the church door was lined with gazers. Those who were obliged to remain at home looked abroad from their doors, so that all were gratified more or less. Everyone on Mr. Gray's premises had a holiday, including Miss Young, though Mrs. Rowland did not see why her children should lose a day's instruction, because a distant cousin of Mr. Gray's was married. The marriage was made far too much a fuss of for her taste, and she vowed that whenever she parted with her own Matilda there should be a much greater refinement in the mode. Everyone else appeared satisfied. The sun shone, bells rang, and the servants drank the health of the bride and the bridegroom. Margaret succeeded in swallowing her tears, and was, in her inmost soul, thankful for Hester and herself. The letters to Mr. Hope's sisters and brother, left open for the signatures of Edward and Hester Hope, were closed and despatched, and the news was communicated to two or three of the Ibbotsons' nearest friends at Birmingham. Mr. and Mrs. Gray agreed, at the end of the day, that a wedding was, to be sure, a most fatiguing affair, for quiet people like themselves, but that nothing could have gone off better. End of chapter 14